Hi, friends. Thanks for being here. I hope this finds you in good health and secure. Uh, let's continue with Parable of the Conjured City. This is a pretty involved one, isn't it? This chapter. It's, uh, I would say, a rather transitional chapter. We're moving steadily from establishing the Lotus Sutra as the ultimate teaching without uh, outing all previous teachings as false or inadequate. They're just provisional. They're steps along the way, right? And now we're moving into the idea that, all right, we know what we need to do now. We have this new paradigm, this real nirvana that previously was misunderstood and incomplete. Now we can really attain in this life, in this moment, not future lifetimes, future lifetimes being a, a colloquial vernacular, really indicating the next moment, right? As we modern Buddhists now understand the idea of time better, that time is just a locus of points, and the points are what we need to pay attention to rather than the history of points or the possibility of points because that makes it seem linear. And that linear timeline, that's a delusion. That's an illusion because time doesn't work that way. In fact, life as a construct is all over, all the time, everywhere. So there is nothing linear about it. it you, at the most, you could say it's sequential. But what influences a particular moment, which is so granular, I mean, look that up in the first volume or the first book of uh, Buddhism reference, yeah? Uh, it's unfathomably brief. But what occurs in that brief, tiny duration as far as influence... Hmm? can send the next moment in any direction, from back to forward to side to right, the ten directions of Buddhism. It's not linear. It's just sequential, right? Influence, momentum. You could say, well, momentum, the kinetic energy means that things stay on a certain course. But when it comes to the engine of life, the course isn't physical. The samsaric reality may seem obviously physical, but the mental course, it has no direction and it has all directions. There we go. There's that Buddha talk again. It is and it isn't. It will and it won't. And it won't, won't. And it will, will. And it on and on. Because it's all over all the time. All potential can instantiate at any given moment, given the particular tendencies and conditions and the way they're influenced through experience. This is the phenomenal, precious, rare potential of a sentient mind to witness and take cognitive action to course 
with the influences we become aware of and choose as we influence the environment around us, right? We call this, what's the word now? Don't forget it. Oh, you silly old man. Every other word is streaming through my head. Agency. Yeah, we have agency. Why do we have agency, right? This is a topic hotly discussed and, and uh, uh, disagreed upon topic of free will. Well, I don't like the term free will because that's, that's in relation to linearity. Hmm? So rather than argue about free will, what I will say, and I've argued about it before, but let me restate it with a few more years of experience talking about this, is that potential has no the very nature of potential as a concept, it's a word, but as a concept, potential has no construct. It has no limitation. It has no direction, right? Potential is potential. It's not even anything can occur. It's that whatever occurs must be manifest of potential. Otherwise, it wouldn't exist. So there are no parameters to potential other than there are no parameters to potential, right? And if we have that laid out in front of us, again, words, then what we select as influence or curiosity or experimentation doesn't have to have a basis in what we've experienced before. It can leap from what has been experienced before to a supposition. And if then else, if you're into computer programming. So with that kind of agency, we can curiously check things out, use our imagination to experience either success or failure. And based on that success or failure, we can keep going, we can make other discoveries or shun some discoveries. This is the nature of agency. Okay? So, in that process, sometimes we make, we find things, discover things that we're unsure about, unclear about, or are shocked by, thrown for a loop by. Those moments are when we can foster doubt. Did I do the right thing? Is that really real? Am I imagining that? Hmm? And those moments in our practice can derail us a bit. So in the midst of teaching bodhisattvas how to commit and how to reach this higher state of nirvana, Shakyamuni is also teaching that part of your growth is interacting with others and you will not only reach these moments of doubt occasionally, but 
the people you influence will meet them too. So how do we deal with that? And he uses himself as an example in the parable of the conjured city. And that's what we're in the midst of right now. So he continues, all this may be likened to the following. There is a steep, difficult, very bad road. 500 Johannes in length, empty and devoid of human beings, a frightful place. There is a great multitude wishing to traverse this road to arrive at a cache of precious jewels. So there's a goal here with a great payoff. There is a guide, perceptive and wise, of penetrating clarity. Who do you think that might be? And who do you want to be? Who knows the hard road? It's passable and impassable features. There are some tripwires on the way here. I'm experienced. I've gone through this. I've reached this doubt. Let me show you how to get around it. Hmm? And who, wishing to get through these hardships, leads the multitude? It's quite a responsibility, right? The multitude, being led, get disgusted midway and say to the guide, we're exhausted and also frightened. We cannot go on. It is still a long way off, and we now wish to turn back. Hmm. He's going to go Titan. She wants to quit. But it's just because it just seems hard right now, and it doesn't look like it's going to get any easier. You see how this is talking about the practice, yeah? The guide, being a man of many skillful devices, thinks... These wretches are to be pitied. Not these wretches are not worth my time, but these wretches, because that's their life state right now, they're to be pitied. Ah, I understand, right? Pity, compassion. How do I reach them to keep them inspired, to aspire to the goal? How can they throw away a fortune in jewels and wish instead to turn back? Because they don't have confidence in the payoff. They've reached their limit, they think, of what they can endure waiting for this promised payoff they've never witnessed. Or if they have, they've witnessed so brief a moment of it that in their current state, uh, they don't see it as enough of a payoff. But you, having had experienced as a bodhisattva, know the payoff is worth it. So it's like, oh man, just a little further, right? We go through this all the time. When he has had this thought, with his power of devising expedience, he conjures up on that steep road, 300 Johannas away, a city. Look, look, don't, don't think about the, we're only halfway, but just a little further, 300 Johannas up the road, there's this city. Now he's lying through his teeth. But he's just trying to inspire them to go somewhat further. See how much more you can extend your effort. That you don't believe in yourself. I know that's not what you're saying right now. You're saying you don't believe in the payoff. But what it is is yourself that you don't have much confidence in. Let alone that the payoff is worthwhile. But up the road, oh man... 
You're going to reach something you haven't before, long before we get to the ultimate goal. Clever expedient device, right? Then he declares to the multitude, have no fear. There is no need to turn back. Here is this great city. You may stop in it and do as you please. If you enter the city, you can quickly regain your composure. If you then feel able to proceed to the jewel cachet, you will also be free to leave. If you want to continue the goal then, yeah, yeah, go for it. <laughs> at that time, the exhausted multitude, overjoyed at heart, sigh as they, as at something they have never had before, saying, we have escaped that bad road and shall quickly regain our composure. Cool. Burgers and fries and a coat for everyone. <laughs> right? Thereupon the multitude proceed to enter the conjured city, having the notion that they are saved and evincing a feeling of composure. They actually experience this city. It's mental, right? Buddhism's about the mind, attitude and intent. At that time, the guide, knowing that the multitude have rested and are no longer fatigued, straightway dissolves the conjured city and says to the multitude, Come away! The jeweled cachet is near. The great city of a while ago was conjured up by me for the purpose of giving you rest, nothing more. What? O oh, bhikshus, the thus come one is also like this. So right back to the three vehicles versus the one, right? He teaches you what you need to aspire to to get you further along the way. He now functions as a great guide for you all. He knows that the bad road of the agonies of birth and death is steep and hard. The cycle of birth and death. We get hooked on the moments instead of mo moving mentally with them. Hmm? Long and far-reaching, but that it must be crossed over and left behind, knowing also that if the beings do not hear of a single Buddha vehicle, they will have no wish to see the Buddha or to approach him, thinking the Buddha path is long and far off. It is only by long submission to suffering that one can achieve it. Right? That's what people who have been practicing for a while and seem to not see the uh, uh, big changes in their life right away, they start to fall away. Yeah, They start to lose confidence. And then they think they can never reach it. The Buddha, knowing this state of mind to be cowardly and mean, by resort to his power to devise expedients, preaches two nirvanas midway for the purpose of giving them rest. It's not the goal, but here you can feel replenished. You can feel accomplishment and feel motivated once again to aspire further. This is why there's different definitions of nirvana, right? When the beings take up residence in these two lands, 
Then the thus come one preaches to them, what you had to do is not yet done. You didn't get there. You think you have accomplished what you have not. You have more to learn. What? Some people don't want to hear that. They feel a little insulted, maybe. Like the Arhats at the beginning of the Lotus Sutra get up and go, we don't need to hear anymore. And they take off. Arrogance. Hmm? The lands in which you dwell are near to Buddha knowledge. Right? What did I say earlier about Virmalakirti? The Buddha land is this land. It's a paradigm shift. You don't need to go anywhere. Except mentally, you need to work this out. You must observe and consider, weigh and measure. The nirvana you have gained is not the real one. This is simply the thus come one's power to devise expedience. Within the one Buddha vehicle, he speaks of a threefold distinction. He is like that guide who... To, the, who, to give the travelers rest, conjured up a great city, but who, when he knew they were rested, declared to them, the jewel cachet is near. This city is not real, being nothing more than a magical creation of mine, an imaginary respite. Right? At that time, the world-honored one, wishing to restate this meaning, proclaimed Gathas, saying, the Buddha, victorious through great penetrating knowledge for ten kalpas, sat on the platform of the path. Yet no Buddha Dharma came to the fore, nor was he able to achieve the Buddha path. Gods, demons, dragon kings, a multitude of asuras and others constantly rained divine flowers on him, thus making offerings to that Buddha. The gods beat divine drums and made many kinds of music, then a fragrant wind blew away the withered flowers and rained down new and lovely ones in their stead. When ten minor kalpas had passed, at length he was able to achieve the Buddha path, and gods and worldlings all danced for joy of heart. That Buddha's sixteen sons, all accompanied by retinues in the thousand of myriads of millions who surrounded them, together went before that Buddha. With heads bowed, doing obeisance to the Buddha's feet. They begged him to turn the Dharma wheel. May the Dharma reign of the sainted lion find us all, fill us all. A world-honored one is a very hard thing to meet with. In a long time appearing only once, and for the purpose of enlightening all living beings, agitating everything. Calls everything into question, yeah? In the world's spheres to the east, in 500 myriads of millions of lands. Sorry. This is the time of the year where my brain's just run out of my nose. <laughs> Sorry. It's <laughs> gross. Sorry. A 500 myriads of millions of lands, the Brahma palaces gleamed in a way they had never done before. The Brahmins, seeing these signs, then came before the Buddha, where they made him an offering of scattered flowers and presented palaces to him as well. They begged the Buddha to turn the Dharma wheel, with Gathas praising him. But the Buddha, knowing the time had not yet come, received their entreaties, seated in silence. And just gave them a nod, right? 
in three principal and four intermediate directions, also upward and downward in the same way, they scattered flowers as offerings to the palaces, begging the Buddha to turn the Dharma wheel. A world-honored one is very hard to meet with. We beg you, with your great compassion, to open wide the ambrosial gates and turn the unexcelled Dharma wheel. Right? That's what we read before in uh, exhausting detail, yeah? The world-honored one, being of incalculable wisdom, received the entreaties of that multitude and for their sakes preached a variety of dharmas. A variety. <clears throat> Namely, the four truths and the twelve conditions. From nascence through old age and death, all exist through the cause of birth. Right? You can't have old age, sickness, death, all the rest without the instantiation of the physical realm. The very thing that glues us to craving and clinging, that engine that produces us, karma wants to keep continue to do that with its skandhas looking to be satiated, yeah? Eyes, ears, taste, touch, so on. In this way, the multitude of faults and griefs, you all should know. When he pronounced this dharma, 600 myriads of millions of billions were enabled to exhaust the limits of sundry woes and all to become arhats. Well, arhats. Just based on releasing the skandhas, but they haven't released their mentations, their, their final attachments, right? They're looking forward to that after they die. That's, that's not, you can right now have complete perfect enlightenment, but they think they've reached it even though they have not. This is the problem with the earlier teachings. It, it didn't go all the way, but that's okay as long as they would understand that they were just a very good step along the way. But many of them thought, as it's been repeated many times in many translations, thought they had achieved what they had not. So here we go. At the second time of the preaching of the Dharma, a multitude as numerous as the sands of a thousand myriads of Ganges rivers, there's the Ganges again, without receiving the dharmas, yet attained ahatva. After them, <clears throat> of those who found the way, the number was incalculable, for one could count them throughout myriads of millions of kalpas and still be unable to reach their limit. At that time, the sixteen princes left their households and became shramaneras. We're going to listen to the Buddha's words. And altogether besought that Buddha to preach the Dharma of the great vehicle. May we and our following all achieve the Buddha path. We, <clears throat> in other words, the Buddha path is something you can live right now in samsara. The arhat doesn't, doesn't understand this. We beg to gain, like the world-honored one, 
an eye of wisdom supremely pure. I should state that differently. The Arhats think they have achieved that, but they have not. They've reached what Shakyamuni is telling them, a false nirvana, a nirvana which is a conjured city to inspire them to continue. But they think they got to the, they claim they've gotten to the destination. They have not. This is the great difference between Arhat Bodhisattva. Is it making sense? I need to make that uh, two-column document. I've got to bring this home somehow because it's a topic of great debate. Misunderstanding, I should say. It's not really debate because it's not two points of view. It's a false points of view and a correct points of view. <laughs> I know, I, I don't mean to sound superior. This is just the hierarchy of the teachings. Yeah? This is what Shakyamuni is saying right now. And that's, this is why he's taken so much time, so many chapters to explain. It's not that I lied to you. I provided you what you needed to continue. All right. The Buddha, knowing the minds of the young men and their deeds in, former, in the past, by resort to incalculable means and variety of parables, preached the six paramitas. And the matters of the various supernatural penetrations <clears throat> defining the real Dharma. The way trodden by the Bodhisattva. And the preaching of this scripture of the Dharma Blossom, the Myoho Rengekyo. Gathas as numerous as Ganges' sands, that Buddha, having preached the scripture, the text, the teaching of the Dharma, in a quiet room entered into dhyana concentration, single-mindedly sitting in one place for 84,000 kalpas. <coughs> Sat in meditation for a long time, right? This time of the year, uh, the humidity is so low, everything dries out. All right. <clears throat> These Sharmaneras, the 16 sons, remember, knowing that the Buddha had not yet emerged from this dhyana, this samadhi is what we would call it these days, for the sake of the multitude of incalculable millions preached the Buddha's unexcelled wisdom. Each seated on a Dharma throne, they preached this sutra, or this teaching of the great vehicle, the one vehicle, the Buddha vehicle, yes? The Myoho Rengekyo. After the Buddha's serene quiescence, propagating and thus aiding conversion through the Dharma, each and every Sharmaneta conveyed to, to liberation living beings who numbered as many as 600 myriad million Ganges rivers' sands. After that Buddha's passage into extinction, these persons who heard the Dharma in whatever Buddha land they might happen to be, whatever life state they were in their progression, yeah, were born together with their teacher, with their Buddha education, their Buddha 
Dharma teaching, yeah? These 16 Shramaneras, having perfectly trodden the Buddha path, now in the 10 directions have each been able to achieve right intuition because their intuition is now based on reality, not illusion. Again, intuition being that influence from internal experience, the mental experience, right? At such time, those who hear the Dharma, each before a different Buddha, and who have taken the stand of the voice hearer, shall be taught at length the recourse to the Buddha path. The voice hearer is the, the um, Shravaka, right? I, numbering among the 16, in time past, did also preach for you. Shakyamuni identifies himself in this fable, in this story, this parable, as one of the 16 sons. Well, he was a prince, a son of the Shakya clan, right? Of, um, was it Drudodana? What was his father's name? Anyway. Thus, by resort to devices, I drew you toward Buddha wisdom. It is through these former causes and conditions that I now preach the scripture of the Dharma blossom, the Myoho Renge Kyo, causing you to enter the Buddha path. Now that's significant. What, what's a way to interpret that that you've heard me say over and over and over again? Causing you to enter the Buddha path. Right? To live as a bodhisattva is not a static thing. To live as a bodhisattva is an active thing because life is momentum. And when we chant Namu as bodhisattvas, Myoho Rengekyo, we invoke the law, the Buddha law, that we make the cause to enter the Buddha path. It's a path because it's momentum. We don't become Buddha because there is not such a thing. There is Buddha-ness, the experience of Buddha. Moment to moment to moment to moment to moment. The, the, the transitory engagement with the engine of life. That's Buddha-ness or the Buddha path. Just another way to say it, yeah? And that's what we invoke every time we chant the Daimoku. So simple. Be on your guard against fear and alarm. These are, right, we give them, he gives them personages, names, Dairakutenomao, the devil of the sixth heaven, the this and that. They're all contained within this one statement. Be on your guard against fear and alarm. Because those are heavy-duty engines of doubt. But you're creating those fears and doubts. Be, be aware. Don't let them come up and distract you. Right? For example, suppose that there was a bad, steep road. Remote and with many harmful beasts this time. 
Also without water or grass, a place feared by men. A multitude of innumerable thousands of myriads wish to traverse this steep road, but the roadway is vast, extending for 500 yohanas. At that time, there is a guide. Firm of memory and endowed with wisdom, a man of clarity whose mind is fixed. He knows. He knows what this endeavor takes, what it requires of us. But the payoff, the payoff is everything. And who in the midst of dangers can save men from many troubles. The multitude, all tired and disgusted, addressed the guide saying, We are now quite exhausted. This is too hard. And at this point, wish to turn back. I'm just going to go back to being ignorant and suffering. The guide has this thought. Hmm. This lot is much to be pitied. They don't have confidence in themselves. What can I do to bolster their confidence to yet go further? How can I, can they wish to turn back? In other words, how can I make them do so? And lose these most precious jewels. Why would they do that? Well, they don't have any idea. You know, because you've been there, but they don't. So to them, it's just kind of a fancy form. Yeah, okay, you say so, but too hard. At that moment, he thinks of an expedient device. I know, I'll trick them. But it's not really a lie. It's just, yeah, it's a lie. But the lie is based on compassion and, self, and liberation, leading them to their enlightenment. So is it really bad? It's just a device. Okay. At that moment, he thinks of an expedient device whereby through resort of the power of supernatural penetration, convincing them, he's a good salesman, he conjures up a great city with inner and outer walls, one whose houses are beautifully adorned, surrounded by parks and groves, by moats and pools, by layered gates and tall towers, full of men and women, uh, a Sonic, a Hardee's, and a Wendy's, and even a great uh, smorgasbord, uh, Las Vegas style, and maybe some gaming, you know, entertainments. Get your mind off of things for a moment. Get, replenish your energy. <laughs> when he has conjured up this creation, he comforts the multitude saying, Fear not! When you enter this city, you see it right over there? Each may do as he pleases. You go on, you have a good time. These persons, having entered the city, are all delighted at heart. Woo, woo, okay, yeah, I'm feeling much better now. All realizing composure, they again, wear themselves out in fun, I suppose, and saying to themselves that they have been rescued, the guide, knowing that they are at rest, okay, y'all feel a little less beaten up now, assembles the multitude and announces, okay, you are now to go forward. Oh, man, really? This is only a magically created city. What? When I saw how exhausted you were, how you wished to turn back midway, then by resort to my power of devising expedients, in the emergency, I conjured up this city. You are now to make every effort to reach the jewel cachet together. 
I too am like this, for I am the guide of all. Buddhaness is the guide. All of us have the capacity for Buddhaness as long as we have the steadfast conviction to do so. Nichiren's always repeating this to us, yeah? Since I see the seekers of the way, all of you guys, exhausted and disgusted in mid-course, unable to transcend birth and death, the cycle of birth and death, right? Or the steep road of agony, sometimes going through and cleansing your karma can be a rough ride. But you have to have the conviction that by constantly manifesting your Buddha, Buddha path, you will accomplish it. You will get rid of obstacles, samsaric obstacles. Your mind must be retrained. Therefore, by resort to the power of expedient devices, in order to give them rest, I preach nirvana to them. So what is the magic city, the conjured city? It's a fake goal, an interim goal, a nirvana that isn't really nirvana, but it feels like it because you're so exhausted. You need a respite. So here, experience a little nirvana. Well, it's not really nirvana, but you'll, it'll feel like it for a while anyway. Saying, your suffering is at an end. What was to be done, you have already achieved. Right? When I know that having reached nirvana, they have all attained arhatva. There's the arhat. Only then do I gather the multitude and for them preach the real dharma. The Buddhas, by their power of devising expedients, create distinctions, preaching three vehicles. But there is, in fact, only one Buddha vehicle. And it is to provide a resting place that the other two are preached. Follow? Now, for your sakes, I preach the reality. For what you have gained is not extinction. For the sake of Buddha omniscience, you must put forth great and vigorous effort. For only when you are directly aware of all knowledge, and when that happens, you can well assume there will be no more doubts. Your conviction will be solid. The question of conviction won't even come up. Right? And of the ten strengths of the Buddha Dharmas comprising these and other things, only when you are in full possession of the 32 marks shall you have real extinction. The guides among the Buddhas preach nirvana in order to give rest. Once they know that the beings are at rest, they lead them to the Buddha knowledge, the Buddha experience, right? The Buddha-ness. The scripture of the Lotus Blossom of the Fine Dharma, end of role, the third role, typo. So now we're going on to roll four, which we will start in the next podcast video. Receipt of prophecy by 500 disciples. Ooh, there could be a lot of repetition there. We'll see.
So that's chapter 8. So you notice there's, a, there's kind of a rhythm to this. He, uh, he makes a, uh, an aspect of his teaching clear. And then with every step of the way, even within the Lotus Sutra, there's a, a payoff to different levels of understanding. Again, for the reason of this is still the uh, preparatory phase of the Lotus Sutra, right? The first third or the first half, depending on how you divide it. Still encouraging, still providing the basis for and having to encourage every step along the way. Yes, you will get there. Yes, you will get there. Because still... The audience is like, wow, this is fascinating. This is amazing. But unless he says we'll get there, I don't know that we will. They still don't get that it's up to them. But don't worry, it's coming. Right? Nietzsche talks about this all the time. His favorite chapter, the 16th, right? So we're on the 8th. So we're halfway there. <laughs> okay? Anyway, I will see you in the next one. In the meantime... Do us all a favor. Do yourself a kindness. Take care of your health. Be wise. The more you do that for your own life, the more so you will influence others in the same way without even trying. Right? It all start, starts with our mind. Namo Myo Thank you again. Please <clears throat> like and subscribe. Um, any support you can give by, you know, purchases of ebooks, uh, books, mandalas, um, donations, especially through Patreon and PayPal, tremendously, tremendously important to help keep this resource growing and alive. And uh, I have nothing but great admiration and appreciation for that. Um, your practice, your continued practice. I can't even describe how much I use the word pride, but it just seems that almost seems like a samsaric things to say. It's not there's ego attached to pride. I want to use a different word. It's so prana It's so life giving. It, it keeps me energized and all of us energized. So. All right. Thank you. See you in the next one. Okay. Bye for now. Thank you.